Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, March the 21st, 2023. It is currently 3.34 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where it's about 80 degrees. It's beautiful outside today. It is a little windy, but it's a beautiful day outside and well, if if you if you could see, if you could see, this obviously isn't a video podcast, but if you could see, everything is kind of in disarray right here because I kind of just all of a sudden decided, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go live. And then before I knew it, I was pressing the go live button. I'm like, wait a minute. I didn't even have everything ready to go. So I have to talk about the weather for a minute as I try to get everything situated here. I have I have two pencils. I have a journal. I have th- four Bibles. I have four Bibles. I have an iPad. I have a Kindle. I have everything I think I need. I just started grabbing. I just, my book bag is right here next to me. I started grabbing everything from the book bag. I'm like, okay. I didn't even have everything <laughs> ready to go. I don't know why I hit the go live button. You talk about not being prepared, but I, I, I wasn't prepared. But here's what happened. A little while ago, at 30 minutes ago, 40 minutes ago, I was looking on my iPad and I'm like, it's been a while since I've looked at the sermons.net app, sermons.net. I would challenge you to download the app, sermons.net. That's the sermons.net app. We used to broadcast on that app, but we started having difficulties with broadcasting on the Spreaker app, the Sermons 2.0 app, the Church One app, and the sermons.net app because the sermons.net software when you go live, it basically takes over your microphone, increases the volume to it works with its software, which then makes all the other platforms, it makes it too loud. It's really weird. I wish I could try to describe what happens. I would love to be still broadcasting live on sermons.net. What I would really like to do, if we could, um, I would really like to once again subscribe to sermons.net and at least upload all of our content there like at least upload all of it, but it takes so much time. I would almost really have to like hire someone to go, okay, you, you, you manage sermons.net. You, you, you sign up. I'll give you the, the, the credit card. You, you manage it. You control it. You upload it. You add the artwork. You add the title. You add the description. You add, you do it all. You, you just download the, the message from either, the church from Sermons 2.0, from Spreaker, wherever you download it, wherever you want to get the audio from, and then you upload it there and you fill it all out. I would lo- I like to do that because then we would have another library of all of our content. Now, it'd be, it would take forever to upload all of our content there, organize it into series. It would be, it would be great to have another, but it would take so much time and effort and, and work. I'm, I still don't even have everything uploaded to the Sermons 2.0 app and the Church 1 app. I'm still way behind on doing that. But because uh, that's just that's the kind of work that's not fun, right? You're not broadcasting. You're not researching. You're not studying. It's like uh, it's like trying to manage all of the different podcast, uh, all of the different podcast platforms, whether it's 
Pandora, whether it's Spotify, whether it's Apple, there's all of these things you can be doing, trying to make it look right, adding better descriptions, making sure spelling and punctuation is right, you know, um, trying to market it, all of those things you're supposed to do, but it's, I, I, I'm, I'm horrible at doing those kinds of things. But sermons, I say all of that to say you should download the sermons.net app. Sermon.net app. I always put an S after, hang on, let me make sure, let me read it. It is sermon.net. I always say sermons.net. Sermon.net. And they're supposed to be doing some major upgrades in 2023. Uh, So I'm going to be interested to see what they do. But you should download the app. I downloaded the app. I started looking around. And all of a sudden, I saw, I didn't know if it was a church. I didn't know what it was. But I I saw something that said, woman at the well. Is Is that how it read? Now, woman at the well, woman at the well. And immediately I was like, wait, woman at the well. We've been working on different chapters in the Gospel of John. Okay, that's that's interesting. So I clicked on it. I hit play. It wasn't a sermon about the woman at the well. But then I realized it's kind of like a series called Woman at the Well. Uh, but, but they are currently in the Gospel of John. So I started scrolling down. And I was immediately going to go find the story of the woman at the well. And then I was like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's not do that. So I scrolled down and I found one for John chapter two. Now, if you remember, we've been talking about a little bit here for the Bible study exercise. Not only we've been talking about individual chapters in the gospel of John, not only have we been doing that, we started talking about the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And remember, the seven signs of Jesus play a prominent role in the structure of the Gospel of John. These signs exclusively appear in the first half of John. And remember the list of the seven signs that we came up with based off a book I told everyone to buy? Number one, turning water into wine. Number two, cleansing the temple. Number three, healing the nobleman's son. Number four, healing the layman. Number five, feeding the multitude. Number six, healing the blind man. Number seven, raising Lazarus. So I'm like, well, they've got a message here on turning water into wine, John chapter two. That's one of the seven signs. So I started looking, found, uh, I, I found the, the share tab. I sent it to me in an email, went to it on my laptop, downloaded it, amplified the audio And that's what we're going to do on this Tuesday afternoon, March the 21st. Beautiful day outside. The sun is coming through the window behind me. It's nice, warm, and bright here in the studio. And I've got my Bibles. I've got everything ready to go. What do you think? What do you think? Sounds like a good idea? Look, please download the Sermon.net app. Here are the three apps you should at least have on all your mobile devices. You should have the Edify Christian Podcast app. That's a given. And you should have four. You should have at least four apps on all your mobile devices. A good podcasting app, right? I Pocket Cast, I love Pocket Cast. I catch it. There's a lot of them. But you should have at least one very good podcast app where you can just subscribe to all the podcasts available, no matter what kind, Christian, secular, news, entertainment, doesn't matter, right? You need one of those. You need number two, the Edify Christian Podcast app, because it's a podcast app that supposedly has like 2 million Christian podcasts. You definitely should have that, explore it, and use it as a resource, right? Number three, you should have the Sermons 2.0 app. 
right? Because, you know, what, two million, three million, whatever it is, some crazy number of sermons available to you and new content being added continually, all right? So you should have a good podcast app, the Edify Christian podcast app, the Sermons 2.0 app, and the Sermon.net app. The Sermon.net app. You should have all of those. Now, on the Edify Christian podcast app, please subscribe to Theology Central. On the Sermons 2.0 app, please subscribe to Theology Central. And if you really, 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 oh, and on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to Theology Central. So I don't care if it's the podcast app, the Edify Christian podcast app, or the Sermons 2.0 app. Subscribe to Theology Central. And then if you really like what we do here, please consider downloading the church, downloading the church one app. That's church O N E church O N E choose theology central. And then it becomes the theology central app. But yeah, I think you should, I think everyone should have those things on their mobile devices, a good podcasting app sermons dot, or sermons 2.0 uh, or I'm sorry, a good podcasting app, the edify Christian podcast app, the Sermons 2.0 app, the Sermon.net app, and of course, the Church One app. I think you should consider having all of those. Now, the Church One, I don't count, and those others, because it's specifically for us, but you should at least have the others, even if you hate us. Good podcasting app, the Edify Christian podcast app, the Sermons 2.0 app, and the Sermon.net app. You really should have those, because anytime you're studying Anything, you can just search for sermons and messages and podcast episodes about the topic, about the chapter. I mean, that's like having this crazy library at the uh, right there on your mobile device. And all of those are free. All of those resources are free. So you should definitely, you should definitely do that. But as I was saying, I found this series called Woman at the Well. It comes to us from... The Woman at the Well seems to be a series from, what church is this? Bell, Bell Press Church, B-E-L-P-R-E-S. It seems to be a Presbyterian church. It seems maybe much more on the liberal side of things, at least from the, my, ex, just briefly looking at it, I could be, I could be drastically wrong. It could be very, very conservative. So I, I apologize if I get it wrong. I'm just saying it just kind of looked maybe possibly that way. I could be wrong. Uh, but the Bell Press Church, I think it's in, I think it's in Bellevue, Washington. I think it's where it's located. And uh, th- they have a series called Woman at the Well. They're doing, they're currently in the Gospel of John. I went back and found where they did a study on John chapter 2, and that's what we're going to review today. So are you ready? I have no idea if this is good. I have no idea it's bad. Remember the rules that apply to our sermon reviews. I don't listen to them in advance, right? Why not? Because then it would be me basically rehearsing something. That's no fun. I like to just grab onto everything and just, let's just, hey, we just sit down and start listening to a sermon together. So are you ready? I hope so. Here we go. Remember, this is one of the seven signs. It'll be interesting to see if they even mention the seven signs. It will be interesting to see how they approach the text. I don't know. Hopefully this adds to your your study of the seven signs and study your study of some of these chapters in the Gospel of John. So I'm going to open my first Bible here to John 2. I'm going to open my second Bible over here to John chapter 2. 
so that we have two translations. I'm going to open those. All right, I got two Bibles. Oh, I got my Dasani, right? Because you remember, if it's not Dasani, it's not water. I'm going to take a drink. All right, oh, that's nice and cold. I like that because it's about 175 degrees up here. All right, and I got the iPad, so I got the Blue Letter Bible app. I think we're ready to go. And I've got you, right? I got, I'm assuming there's like thousands upon thousands of people listening live. Okay, maybe maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole, but maybe three of you are listening live. But if you're listening live, please, please participate. Thoughts, observations, objections, questions. They're all welcome. And I only charge $15.45 for every question. Okay, $15.45. That's an odd number, right? You ready? I hope you're ready. Here we go. It's Tuesday, March the 21st. Let's review. We start now. This week we're doing John 2, chapter 2, which is the official launch of Jesus' ministry. Up to now, we've had kind of a soft launch of his ministry. Um, John the Baptist points him out. A couple of John's disciples defect to Jesus' ministry. And then Jesus begins to collect a few of his own who he didn't poach from John. Um, but now in John chapter 2. Those are weird terms. Did the disciples defect from John? Did Jesus poach? That's weird terms. Defect and poach. Did the disciples defect John or did they do exactly what John was wasn't John's entire ministry to point people to Jesus? So nobody was defecting from John to go to Jesus. They were following what John was designed to do to point them to Jesus. Was Jesus poaching disciples? I, I don't know. Just seems like very negative terms. I, maybe I'm being nitpicky, but I just, I just don't see it as defection and poaching. I don't see it that way. You. Jesus and his first few disciples, they've gone back up into Galilee, if you remember where they're from, and now we have the public launch of his ministry at Cana in Galilee. So, well, I forgot to check that this would move. Yes, um, weddings are very memorable occasions, generally. Uh, they're memorable for being wonderful or sometimes for being just awful, and um Years ago, Scott and I got together. I, I do find it interesting. I just, when, when you listen to sermons, and I guess this is more like a, it sounds like it's like a Zoom or a video Bible study. So maybe we, call, we should call this a Bible study review. So it sounds like it's obviously not being preached in a church. It's, it sounds like it's a Zoom kind of Bible study, S Skype, something along those lines. All right, so we'll call it that. But I do find it interesting, the approach, when every, whenever anyone goes to John chapter 2 to preach it, right? And it, it, it's, it's always funny. Sometimes it feels like that in preaching, it's almost like, here's the template. Like, the, like if you're a preacher or a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study or a small group leader, it's like someone out there has your address and they immediately send you all the templates. And like, when you get to John 2, you, what you emphasize is you talk about weddings because everyone can relate to a wedding, whether it's good, whether it's bad. And you, you make a big deal that it was at a wedding. 
It was in some, it's, it's almost like they were at a wedding and this was a public embarrassment that they ran out on why. And it's like, it's really like, it's, I, I just, I don't know if that's a template that we impose on the text or does the text really say, oh, this was at a wedding and they ran out of why. Like, I don't know. Is the text really making it that, is that really the story? I, I don't know, but it just seems like everyone has to immediately start talking about weddings. I don't know. I'm not saying it's wrong. I, I just, it just feels like everyone has to approach the text the exact same way. And you know how I feel about that. Together with the Colbransons, who were then at Westminster, and we had the funnest time talking about wedding bloopers because, of course, Scott and Gary Colbranson in their days had done many weddings and had many wedding bloopers to talk about. Um, brides and grooms who collapsed or who threw up there was one who threw up and you met I think that is like the all-time winner for horrible I'd rather faint than throw up or they tripped which of course was all, always my fear that I was going to just trip and land on my face um or ways in which the wedding officiant messed up so and there were plenty of those too um well we could we could do an entire podcast about the whole wedding industrial complex like it's just uh i i'm currently doing some 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 like pre pre-marriage counseling i guess you could call it and i i just i my whole view of the whole wedding situation i just don't i don't know it's like i put it this way here's what i know you can spend $127,000 on a wedding and still end up divorced. You can spend two cents on a wedding and still end up divorced. It, it, like it does, like, I, I don't know the wedding, this big ceremony thing and all of the pressure and people get sick and they have bloopers and, and you've got it this and you got all the people have to wear this dress and this color and all of this stuff. And it just, there's nothing there that says it's going to make the wet, the marriage last any longer. So I just, I don't get what all of the, I don't know, maybe, maybe I know some people that that's the most, like the wedding must be perfect, right? It must be. And they have all of these demands and all these wants and there's all this pressure. And I just don't, I just don't get it. Especially from a Christian perspective, because I, I just, I, I just, I don't know. I don't get it. 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 But but we could have a long discussion there. But okay, so they're talking about all the wedding bloopers, and all right, here we go. Let's obviously we're going to immediately get the emphasis that this is a wedding. This is a wedding. So I remember one time in graduate school, Scott and I went to the wedding of fellow graduate students, and I think this was probably the most uncomfortable wedding moment we had ever experienced. It came time for the toasts. And before the dad of the bride could get up, remember, dad usually gets up first. Before the dad could get up, uh, one of our fellow grad students, her husband got up. And he didn't really know this couple at all, but he was drunk. And he got up and he grabbed the mic and he made this long rambling toast that included a few inappropriate comments as we are wont to make when we are drunk. And um, everyone was just so paralyzed by horror. It was like something out of a, 
out of a, a comedy movie, you know, everyone was so paralyzed by horror, they didn't know what to do. And his wife, who was in the program with us, she just kind of put her head down. And she said, I just try to remember this has nothing to do with me. <laughs> so that was probably the worst wedding moment. But luckily, it wasn't my wedding. And um, I wasn't responsible for being such a terrible moment, but uh, always very memorable. Um, on the flip side, if we think about the best wedding we've ever been to, it, it might have been your own, but it might not have been. Usually when it's your own wedding or someone, you know, a child. <laughs> someone just said paralyzed by horror. That's that's a stretch. Well, it is a little bit of uh, hyperbole, but when you tell a story, you got to use a little bit of hyperbolic language, right? To really make it dramatic. I was paralyzed with horror. It was so bad. Okay. But it is a little funny, but once again, we're just getting, and I, and I understand, I understand why they do this. It's the psychology of preaching sometimes is fascinating to me. And I, and I just try to reject all, I try to reject all the rules. I understand the rules. So what is, what is she doing here? If you're looking, if you're analyzing this, She's, she's going to take this idea of a wedding because everyone can relate to it. They can relate to the good. They can relate to the bad. So you tell the story. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this person said, right, I was being too literal. Yeah, you're being a little too literal. Because you tell a story, you got to you gotta add a little something to it, right? I mean, can you, can you imagine telling stories in the most literal way possible? It'd be, well, this guy stood up and it was moderately embarrassing, I mean, that wouldn't be a fun story, right? This guy was you know, moderately drunk and he, he moderate, he, he rambled a little bit and it was, it was moderately uncomfortable. I mean, like that would be a bore, but when you say paralyzed by fear, paralyzed by horror, then it's, it's more dramatic, right? It, okay. Right. We can get into storytelling, but back to analyzing, back to analyzing how sermons work. So there's this con, this, the idea goes like this. That whenever you're getting ready to introduce your sermon or you're getting ready to introduce the text, you got to find a way to make it relatable to the people, right? Because it, it, so much of preaching, it and I hate to say this, and, and maybe maybe this will make sense to you, maybe it will not. I, this is my hypothesis. This is my theory. That so much of preaching seeks to make the people, the star the, are the focus of everything. Like the people in the pew become the focus of everything. And I, and I understand that. Like there was a time that like, okay, I'm going to preach. And what's the focus? It's the people in the pew. So I got to make this relatable. I got to find points of emphasis that will relate to them. I've got to use illustrations that will relate to them. So the people become the focus and the text doesn't become the star of the show. The people in the pew become the star of the show. And I know it's subtle, but what, right, what she's trying to do here is she's trying to, whoever's listening, she wants to make this as relatable. So she's going to emphasize weddings, weddings, because this happens at a wedding. This happens at a wedding, a marriage feast. So, and I understand that by making it related, relatable, then you kind of bring in the audience. You make them go, oh, okay, I can relate to this. But I just think that in a there's probably a way you can do it and still maintain the text as being the star of the show. But my approach is what I try to do is like, no, we're going to be looking at the text. You're irrelevant right now. The text is relevant. I don't care about making it relevant to you. It's relevant because it's the word of God. It's relevant because it's the inspired scripture. 
So we're going to look at the text. And and now I, I but at the same time, there are times I probably try to make it relevant to the to the people. I just think that there's a there's got to be a fine line there. You may not want to go to, I think we got to avoid extremes, but I think so much of preaching is like, oh, we got to make this relatable. We got to break the eye, you know, small group. When, when you look at small group curriculum and leadership guides, you got to ask a question that, that relates to the people. So tell me about a wedding you went to. That's how you would do it in a small group. And then everyone starts talking about all of their wedding stories. And like, oh, so now you spend 20 minutes doing that so that you can finally say, well, tonight we're going to be studying what's something that happened at a wedding that Jesus attended. Ooh. I, I I don't know how that it just seems so like our it just seems so manipulative, right? I've got to I gotta give you an opportunity to talk about story some random story so that you feel invested now in what we're going to do. It just seems so I don't know. I don't like it. You you can draw your own opinion, but let let's see where she's gonna take all of these wedding stories to finally get us to the story in John chapter two. The blah blah blah. You're responsible for someone's some someone or something, and so it's not usually as fun as it could be when you are not responsible. So, um, I I think the most fun wedding I've ever been to. It was this couple I really didn't know at all, but the groom was in Scott's small group. This was years ago, and they were marrying later in life, which meant they had lots of money because they'd been working for a long time after these dual Silicon Valley careers. So there was great and there was an open bar and there was a really really good live band not a dj but a live band that could actually do covers of famous songs so everybody danced and ate and had such a great time and um because the bride and the groom weren't in their 20s they were older people um everyone at the wedding didn't feel self-conscious about dancing because i have noticed as i get older when I go to younger people's weddings now, you know, you don't want to be out there cutting a rug because you look ridiculous. I mean, you know, one can do it, but you don't feel as unselfconscious as when you were younger. So, um, and now that our own kids are getting older, it's a little alarming to me that Holly is already planning this huge wedding and she just needs to slot that placeholder groom into the picture for it to happen. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, who is going to pay for this thing? You know, this is what happens when you have a daughter who works for Disney. She thinks in terms of extravaganzas, you know, who's going to pay for this thing? Wouldn't they rather elope? I mean, elopements are great. Um, Isn't it a little silly to spend so much time and effort on one day? Shouldn't you work on the marriage? You know, not the wedding day, but the marriage. Um, So I can totally sympathize with the bridegroom's family in John chapter two on a couple levels. You know, number one, Scott and I were just poor as church mice when we got married. So, I mean, we didn't have the open bar, the live band, we were poor. So all we could afford was each table got one bottle of wine. And, you know, for people who like having a lot of wine at a wedding, that was not fun for them. I remember one uncle, they were like, where do we get another bottle? I was like, oh my gosh, you're done. You're out. Sorry. We're poor. Maybe you can find some teetotalers who didn't drink their bottle. Um, and guests notice when their expectations are not met. So um, it can be hard. So anyhow, weddings in Jesus' day were multi-day affairs. 
Okay, so we kind of go through all of that to get to, I mean, she's just kind of following the template that you're supposed to follow. She tells all these stories to get you invested because everyone can relate to wedding stories. Now we're going to find out about the, and and preachers always do this because now we're going to give all the background about the wedding, about the wedding culture in Jesus' time and how weddings took place, right? And, and And I've often found it interesting. So many times pastors will ignore the historical context, just ignore it completely, won't even really mention it. And then there's other times every preacher comes along and is like, let me tell you about how weddings worked in Jesus' time. And then they go uh, all this elaborate detail about the weddings. I'm curious, how does your understanding of weddings at the time of Jesus impact your understanding of this text. How relevant is it to you understanding John 2? Now, if we look at John 2 as really supposed to be a sign that points to Jesus, spending 20 minutes learning how the the wedding ritual worked at that time, does it really impact your understanding of John 2? Preachers always do this. It's like so many other chapters, they, they give you no historical context, but they get to the wedding feast. Oh, and all of a sudden it's like, here's how the weddings work. They did this and they did this and they did this and they did this. And everybody's like, ooh, I learned all of this stuff about weddings. I'm not saying it's not relevant, but but what's well, how does it help you understand the, the chapter? Someone says, well, it depends on what we think the emphasis is. True, true. I guess if the emphasis is on ancient wedding traditions, then I guess it would be very important. I just, but as understanding the chapter, I I don't know. Maybe I'm being too negative. Maybe I'm being too negative. But I guess I'm just, I've heard a million sermons on John 2. And I think about, about, probably about 95% of them follow the exact same template. So, all right, here we go. Basically, everyone was invited. So just imagine how expensive that was. Um, Not only is Jesus' family invited, but Jesus himself himself shows up with his disciples. I mean, imagine if you were planning this wedding. He didn't just bring his plus one. He brought his plus two and his plus three and his plus four and his plus five. Yikes, right? Jesus just shows up with these guys. So, you know, the more the merrier. And so this is an expensive undertaking to have to um, feed and provide wine for all these people. And these entertainments went on for days. So, you know, you couldn't just order pizza on the second day. You had to keep the party going. So let's read. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. I'm trying to move this little box. Um, The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine gave out, uh uh-oh, just like the... No, wait, did... I think, did she not imply that Jesus wasn't invited? That they just showed up? Or was he saying Jesus was invited... Uh, but and both Jesus was called and his disciples. That would seem that the Jesus and the disciples were invited. Didn't she just imply that they weren't invited, or did I miss that? Did I miss that? Let me back this up. Did I miss that? Yeah. Okay. Wait. Uh, yeah. I, I'm going to go back here. I'm going to go back because I did she not imply that they weren't invited? 
Okay, I'm going to go way back here, right? Um, so, because I'm just, I'm just curious here. All right. I, I think, yeah, I think, I don't know what happened here. Let, let me, let me back up here. This is an expensive undertaking to have to um, feed and provide wine for all these people. And these entertainments went on for days. So, you know, you couldn't just order pizza on the second day. You had to keep the party going. So let's read. All right, we didn't go far enough back. Let me go, let me go, I'm going to go way back. All right, here we go. Poor as church mice when we got married. So, I mean, we didn't have the open bar, the live band. We were poor. So all we could afford was each table got one bottle of wine. And, you know, for people who like having a lot of wine at a wedding, that was not fun for them. I remember one uncle, they were like, where do we get another bottle? I'm like, oh my gosh, you're done. You're out. Sorry. We're poor. Maybe you can find some teetotalers who didn't drink their bottle. Um, and guests notice when their expectations are not met. So um, it can be hard. So anyhow, weddings in Jesus' day were multi-day affairs. And basically everyone was invited. So just imagine how expensive that was. Um, not only is Jesus' family invited, but Jesus himself, himself shows up with his disciples. I mean, imagine if you were planning this wedding. He didn't just bring his plus one. He brought his plus two and his plus three and his plus four and his plus five. Yikes, right? Jesus just shows up with these guys. So, you know, the more the merrier. Well, Jesus didn't just show up. It, it says, my translation says he was called. This translation says Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So I, so I, I don't know exactly what she was. I, something got kind of miscommunicated there. I'll just, I'll just, just, I look, I've done that a million times. I've misstated something. It didn't come out the way I originally intended it. So we're not going to make a big deal out of it, but I was just a little confused that she kind of makes it sound like they just showed up, but they didn't just show up. They were clearly invited, Jesus and the disciples. <laughs> and so this is an expensive undertaking to have to um, feed and provide wine for all these people. And these entertainments went on for days. So, you know, you couldn't just order pizza on the second day. You had to keep the party going. So let's read. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. I'm trying to move this little box. Um, the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine gave out, uh-oh, just like the wine at my wedding with Scott, when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, oh, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These were big jars. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, 
every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. That's when you get out the two-buck chuck, right? But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, a couple things that strike you when you read this passage. You might have thought it weird that he calls his mom woman. Um, the way we use that word now, when we address it to someone, it's usually in exasperation. Like, what is wrong with you, woman? Right? Exasperation. But we know from when Jesus uses the word again with his mother, he uses it when he is hanging on the cross, that it is a respectful, even a tender way to address her. So we'll see that in John chapter 19. And it's when he's handing her off to the care of John the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's saying, here, take my mom now. So, and he addresses her as woman then. So we know he didn't mean it as, what? you know, what? My as woman, it was not that, even though it sounds like that to our modern ears. Okay. That's a good, I think that's a good observation because you could read it like, and that's always, and that, I think this is a very good important, uh, important point. Hermene hermeneutically speaking, we can at least uh, learn something here. So many times when you read a text, you have to ask yourself, is your understanding of the text coming from how you're reading it, right? In other words, you're reading it a certain way and that's how you're interpreting it or the way you're reading it, is it coming from the text itself? Now, sometimes we kind of read it a certain way and because we read it a certain way, that's how we interpret it. But in a sense, our interpretation should drive our reading. Our reading shouldn't drive our interpretation, if that makes sense. In other words, some people could read this, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Like he's almost frustrated. Woman, wh wh why are you bothering me? Others could read this like, woman, like in a almost a compassionate way. What have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. Like not, not in a, like, do you read it as almost, what are you doing? Or do you see it in a more tender way? Now, everyone can read it differently. And so what you have to realize is it doesn't matter the text. You have a tendency of reading it and you're, in your mind, you're hearing it a certain way. That's why things like The Chosen and other things like that make me so irritated because you watch that and then you start reading the text with that, the way they present it. Well, they may not be presenting it based off the text or presenting it based off the artistic interpretation, and it may not really reflect how the text should be read. So some people could read that, that he's almost being like, hey, 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 I have, what do you have? I have nothing to do with you right now. My hour's not come. And others can read it in a completely different way. How should it be read? You just need to be aware that whenever you're reading a text, you have to ask yourself, okay, wait a minute. Am I allowing myself to read something into the text or the way I'm reading this is being derived from the text? And it's very hard because it's a subtle distinction, but you always have to ask yourself that. Okay, so that was note number one. Note number two. I thought about this. Why does she bring the wine situation to his attention? I thought, well, it's because, well, you brought all the extra guests, right? So, you know, the, oftentimes that. A... He didn't bring extra guests. He was invited and his disciples. I, I, well, well, I don't understand. Like what? 
Oh, it's not like he just showed up. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Why did you bring all these extra people? Well, then you've got to provide the wine. I, 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 I don't think so. Collection was taken up in the community to help support this just um, wallet emptying wedding, right? So maybe a hint that he could contribute. You know, you brought all these extra guys, so maybe pony up a little money for some more wine, or more. He didn't bring extra. The text literally says they were invited. I like. I don't understand why she's refusing to see what the text actually says. Hey, 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 hey! You you brought all of these extra people. You got to pony up. You got to pony up. You got you got You got to you got to donate some. Like I, I don't. I, I oh man, isn't it amazing what we can do to the text? Isn't you, Isn't it almost frightening to you? Like. I'm not even picking on her here. I'm not even trying to pick on her. I'm picking on all of us. Isn't it frightening what we can do to a text? That we can literally see the Jesus and his disciples were invited. And she keeps saying, hey, you showed up with all these extra people. Hey, you showed up. She's mentioned it now a couple of times. Like it was just not planned. And now because they showed up with extra people, she comes to him going, well, then you've got to contribute because you guys drunk all the wine. Like I, I, I don't, I don't understand how she's just ignoring what's right there. How do we, that that scares me to death. Uh, I wonder how many times in my Christian life I've completely ignored what's right there in the text. I wonder how many times I've done that. I want, How many times have you done that? Where we've just literally ignored what's right. In, I mean, it's right there in front of us. Likely she expects him to do something unexpected. But why would, why would he say, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, he doesn't mean, mom, I don't get my allowance till Sunday. You know, don't ask me for money, right? She's asking something more of him than money, um, than a contribution, right? She's asking for something unexpected. Now, um, see, look at now, okay, this this is good. Do you think she came to him because she was looking for him to do something? Now, she's not using the word supernatural. Do you think she was looking for Jesus to do some kind of miracle? Why do you think she brought the problem to Jesus? Now, I don't know. Should we even worry about that? Is that even the point of the text? Is the point? Now, I look, this is always this is the the never-ending dilemma in Bible study, right? We always have to ask ourselves, when is it time when is it time to take one question and just chase it? And when is it time to realize, wait, 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 wait. That question is of no value. It's of no use. And it's not going to help in this study. Like, because you don't want to, you don't want to skip a question. I think it's a, I, I understand why you would why is she bringing the problem to Jesus? But the text never says why. So we could speculate all day. Now, her speculation has led her to offer up at least one reason that goes against the very text itself, because she's like, hey, you brought all of these extra people. No, he brought who was invited. So that's not even, see, so by pursuing this question, she's trying to find solutions that go against the very text. I, do we need that? See, I, I, I look, on one hand, I always encourage people to ask anything because I do ask, 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 ask. But sometimes you just have to realize, mm, okay, I don't know. I, I can speculate, but I don't think it, put it this way. Why she brought it to Jesus is not addressed in the text. 
So all we could do is speculate all day. And in many cases, to try to answer our speculation, we may actually violate what's actually in the text. That's when you, you've got to be careful. This baby's expression. I, I hear the exasperation. Well, are you done reading this page yet? <laughs> he looks like I'm, I've been done reading this page for 20 minutes. Um, oh, I guess I was supposed to turn this slide earlier. So why did she bring it to her attention? Um, yes, I didn't mark the slide there. I think we're done with this slide. Goodbye, Botticelli. Um, so, yes, every mom thinks her son is something special. And we all know how boring people can be when they talk about their kids and they brag about their kids. Um so, you know, I picked this picture of my kids doing swim team, right? Here's a braggy picture, right? We, and, and, and grandmothers are even worse, right? I remember Scott's mom. <laughs> this is what I love about her. She was such a wonderful grandmother. You know, she would just have a little conversation or the kids would bring her a picture or something. And it was the same old stick figures every kid draws, right? But she would say, <gasps> this is a genius. And she meant that sincerely. So, you know. Now you see the problem? She's, she, she's falling into this problem that she's got to make every verse relatable. Oh, Mary brought this problem to Jesus because she, because she's like all of the rest of us mothers, we think our kids are the greatest thing in the world. Like, why do you have to bend over backwards to try to make the text relatable? Can we just figure out what the point of the text is? Like, I understand you want to tell all of these great stories and I'm all for story time. It's great. But what is the point of the text? You, by, by constantly trying to make it relatable. Here's the thing. So many times preachers and teachers are so busy trying to make the text relatable that we literally destroy the meaning of the text. That's just my own. That's my own thoughts. Here we go. It is in the nature of every mom and every grandma to think, this kid is something special, right? Um, and it has been to my everlasting sorrow that these disciples, nobody said, Mary, I just want to sit down with you. And could you please tell me every single, just start with the moment, the moment he said his first word or something. And when did he take his first step? And what was he like as a kid? And, you know, did he like dinosaurs and that sort of thing? Nobody bothered to write that down, which is sad. Um, you know, what did he do? What was he like? But I think it's clear. What? It's sad because no one sat down and asked Mary, give me all of the background of baby Jesus. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. The Bible is the word of God. And what we have is what God wanted us to have. Is it really sad that we don't know if baby Jesus liked toy dinosaurs? Is it really sad that we don't know when Jesus took his first step or if his first word was daddy or mommy? Like, what in the name? What? What? <laughs> oh, I'm really sad that no one set Mary down. No, the scriptures were inspired by God. So you would have to blame God. Go tell God, I'm really upset that you didn't give us the infant accounts of Jesus because I really wanted to know how Jesus took his first step and when he lost his first tooth. I mean, I don't, uh, what in the world? Okay, all right, all right. I, 
<laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. We can guess, right? Mary's question to him implies things. And one of the things it implies is that he has done something before. So um, it does it imply that he's done something before? I mean, is she thinking, hey, remember how you do those miracles? I need one right now. Or is she just coming to, well, hey, Jesus, I need, I, there's a problem here. You think we could help out? Is she looking for something extraordinary, something supernatural? It's clear for her to ask this question that she knows he is capable of doing something out of the ordinary, right? If Jesus had never done anything except be a normal kid, up until this moment, she wouldn't say, hey, I remember a long time ago, the angel said you were going to be pretty special. Start being special, right? They just ran out of why. I, I don't understand this. I don't understand. So if you're ever at a party and someone walks up to you and go, hey, 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 we're, we're out of chips. We're out of chips. I want you to stop and go, well, obviously the reason they're asking me to go get more chips is because they know I'm special and I can do what I don't even understand. Like they're just out of wine for crying out loud. She goes to him to, for a possible solution. I don't know why this supposedly implies, hey, 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 I know you've done extraordinary things. We need an extraordinary solution right now. I don't understand why you would read it that way. Anytime there's a get-together, a family get-together, a party, anything, there's typically you run out of something or someone forgot to get something, and you go to someone and you're like, hey, we're out of this, or they're out of this, and someone will be like, okay, I'll be right back, I'll go get it. Like, I mean, why why is this being treated like, oh, oh, they're out of wine. Hey, Jesus, Jesus, it's time for you to do a miracle. It's time for you to do a miracle. Now, maybe she was asking for that, but I don't know if it if, if the text demands us to read it that way. I think she has seen something before this. He must have done something before this, right? And probably several somethings in the privacy of his family because she doesn't say, oh, Jesus, it would be so cool if you did something cool like you did that one time. Remember when you were 15, you did that one cool thing? It doesn't even say that. Whatever he has done in the past in private has happened more than once. And he has demonstrated some control over it, right? Whatever happened. So she knows it wasn't a weird fluke. And she knows it was within his control. Because, um, you know, if you ask your child to do something and you know they don't have perfect control of it, you wouldn't say, hey, in this very public setting, why don't you try doing that thing over which you have very little control, right? So she knows he is capable of things because he has done them in the privacy. He would be capable of trying to find more wine because anyone there could be capable of doing that. Like, I don't, and not only that, he's got all of his plus ones, right? He's got plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four. He's got people with him. So he has a team of people to help him possibly find a way to get more wine. Like, why, why, don't, why wouldn't we look at the most obvious possible explanation to why she's bringing this to him instead of all of these others? All right. Yeah. Someone just said, I'm not sure we can go around making these claims. I, well, not only I'm not sure we can go around making said claims, I, I, I don't know how this is going to help us understand the actual text. Of his family, and she knows he has control over it. 
Um, another thing that is clear is that she thinks he is ready to become who God told her long ago he would be, right? And she is not above applying a little maternal pressure. So remember, we know that Mary pondered those things in her heart, um, what she was told about who Jesus would become. She remembers it. She's been pondering those things. And she thinks he's ready, right? And I love this, right? This is a um, how many times have we known, you know, a child or a grandchild or, or someone, a, a student, someone was ready to do something, right? And oh, we were just dying for the moment to happen. We knew they had so much to give the world and we just wanted to see it happen. So she applies this little nudge. She knows who he's going to become and she wants that moment. First, what do you mean who he's going to become? I don't get what you mean. You mean who he is? He didn't become it. He was it. He was the eternal son of God from the moment of birth. True God, true man, 100% God, 100% man, hypostatic union. What do you mean? What he was going to become? What are you talking about? So so did she see, ooh, they're out of wine. Jesus, it's time for you to become what you're destined to become. Like, what is the world is happening here? Okay, all right to be now let it begin right probably she already knows you know he's been out of town he went down and i don't know if he told her about the baptism or anything like that yet but but she knows okay sort of unofficially it's happening right so let's have the official happening um and the third thing that's clear is that he trusts she keeps saying these things are clear these things are figments of your imagination there's nothing clear about anything you're saying other than that you've made it all up. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only thing clear is you're just throwing out wild speculation and saying, this is clear, which is another thing that we have. We have to see this in ourselves. Like instead of picking on this person, we have to see it in ourselves. How many times do we say it's clear in scripture when it's not clear? How many times have I been told by people who believe in infant baptism? It's absolutely clear in scripture. You should be baptizing your baby at eight days old. It is absolutely clear, right? I've been told that a million times and I'm like, No, it's not clear. And they're like, yes, it is. How come everyone thinks that what they believe is clear in scripture when obviously it can't be everyone, what they see is clear. It's clear to you. That doesn't mean it's clear at all. It just means you see it. Doesn't mean it's clear. It could be that your vision is the one that's messed up. I I, I just, I just, everyone just, it's clear. It's clear. It's clear. It's clear. It's clear. if we go with what's clear in the text, they're out of line. G- Mary comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, "Hey, woman, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? My hour's not yet come." That that's what's clear. <laughs> okay, sir. He pushes back a little, and then he does what she asks. Right? He doesn't say, "Woman, my hour is not yet come. I'm going home." If you're going to nag me about this, I'm going home, right? He doesn't do that. He, right? Clearly, he trusts her because he does what she asks, um, which makes me think his tone might have been a bit exasperated. Like, I don't know what I 
should start my ministry, right? But it'll, it is also fond and it is trusting, right? All right, mom, right? I was going to do something, right? Just, just wait, I was going to do something. Um, so why is this miracle an appropriate one with which to launch a public ministry? And the first thing is that it's a celebration, right? Jesus views his coming as good news. This is something to celebrate. It's, it's not, I am here and you are all in trouble. It's not that. It's, yay, after so, so long, God is putting into action the next part of his plan, the culmination of his plan. This is wonderful, everybody. Um, you know, we know in the synoptic gospels, if you remember, he goes to the synagogue and he reads the passage from Isaiah about, oh my gosh, the blind are going to see, the lame are going to walk, the dumb are going to speak, right? This is good news. It is time to celebrate because lives are going to be healed. Bodies are going to be healed. Relationships between people are going to be healed and sins are going to be forgiven. Relationship with God is going to be restored. Death is no longer going to hold sway over humanity as it has ever since there were humans to make up humanity, right? Death has held sway and now it's not going to anymore. And this is all good news and cause for celebration, right? Wine at a wedding because let's party. The good times are here and they're going to roll, okay? And Jesus is so Jesus decided to do this miracle at a wedding because he wanted everyone to know that the good times are here and they're going to roll. <laughs> All right, we, we, we proceed. Going to use the analogy of a wedding several times in the Gospels to help us get our mind around the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, John, who wrote this gospel and who also wrote the book of Revelation, he's going to use that same analogy in Revelation to talk about earth and heaven becoming one. He says it's a wedding. It's a wedding of the lamb we talked about last week of the lamb and the bride of Christ, the church, right? It is a wedding and it is the best one you're ever going to be at. And it is wonderful. So we have these, like, these images, these bookends of weddings right? We have the wine, the water into wine at this wedding at Cana, and we are going to have, it's foreshadowing this ultimate wedding banquet that we are all going to enjoy. Okay. Now we talk about the, that the, this is one of the seven signs in the gospel of John. Do you think that this is a sign because it's happening at a wedding pointing to the wedding mentioned in Revelation, the wedding of the lamb? Do you think it's pointing to that? That's a, that's a, that at least raises uh, an interesting question. I don't know if it's supposed to be pointing to that, but okay. And it's wine, right? Um, heaven knows people like wine in the Bible. People like wine outside of the Bible. It, the Bible says it makes glad the heart to the point that there are more verses about the dangers of wine, making the heart a little too glad than about how awesome it is, right? You don't have to convince most people to like wine. 
Um, and Jesus is giving this wine to the wedding guests after they've already had plenty of wine, right? The reason they don't have wine is because they drank it all. These people have been having a good time. They've had plenty of wine. So symbolically, he has new wine for humankind. And, and God is showing he is not stinting in how much he wants to pour out on us. Not like, okay, ooh, let's bring it down. You've all had enough wine, right? No, God is saying my new covenant is a reason to be lavish. To- all right, do you think this is symbolic of Jesus bringing in new wine and not being stingy and pouring out in abundance. Do you think it's a picture of that? See, this is one of the things, once you start trying to take these stories and saying it pictures this and it pictures that and it pictures this, where where do you stop? Where's the stopping point in this? Like how many things pictures this or pictures that? Like she's just going on, you know, it pictures the the wedding of the lamb. Okay, now now it pictures the new wine and it pictures that God is not stingy. And and like, like how... Where where's the stopping point? How far do you go? Pour out a ton more wine on all you people. It is good times, right? Um, Jesus coming and his teachings and his ministry are going to be new wine for new wineskins. He is going to use that analogy and it will be abundant and it will be heady. This stuff is going to go to your head and it will be reason to party. And Jesus is the groom and we are the bride and everyone is invited. So it is time to get the party started with this wine. So turning water into wine is the perfect sign for the coming of the kingdom of God. And it is the perfect sign for the public launch of his ministry. So we are told in verse 11, I I wanted to ask the question of why miracles in the first place. Um, In verse 11, we learn that this sign turning water into wine, quote, manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So miraculous signs are meant to display to the witnesses the glory of God. So the point of it wasn't wedding guests get great wine when they thought there wouldn't be any more wine or they thought they'd be given cheap wine, right? The point of it was that God was pouring out joy on them and celebrating what he was going to do in their midst. This is what this is the glory of God he wants to reveal to these witnesses at this wedding. He is pouring out joy on them. He is celebrating what he is going to do in their midst. Now, I do believe it's not the the point of the story is not about the fact that people just got wine. It is pointing to something else. It is manifesting something. But isn't it, what is it manifesting? Is it manifesting all the good things that he's going to give us? Or is it manifesting who he is? Right? So when we ask for miracles, oh, sorry, that green looks very bright all of a sudden wake you up in case you were dozing off just now. When we ask for miracles or witness miracles, the question we need to ask ourselves then is, number one, what does this reveal to me about the glory of God? So if we are witnessing it, we ask, what does this reveal to me about the glory of God? If we are asking for it, what do we Now, she takes this miracle and now just 
just immediately rips it from there. Like when we witness miracles, when we ask for miracles, now she just brings the miracles over to our time. This is about a historical miracle that happened well, just one time because it was a specific sign miracle to point to something specific about Jesus. The question is, what does this reveal about Jesus? What does this manifest about Jesus? What does this manifest about Jesus? She mean immediately making it about us when we see a miracle, when we pray for a miracle. This isn't about miracles for us. This is about a miracle that happened for them. One time, Jesus wasn't walking around from this point on making wine for everyone. It was a one-time miracle and a one-time situation so that it could represent and point people to Christ. What does this point to Christ? This is not about what... Oh, okay. All right, let's just continue. We want revealed to us about the glory of God. And the second question is, what does this tell me about his character and his nature? And this is very convicting for me as I thought about this, that these are the, this is the purpose of miracles and um, what we're supposed to be looking for in miracles. Because when I ask for miracles, and I do all the time, I ask for miracles all the time, right? The Bible also says just ask, right? He's our daddy. Just ask him for stuff. You know, it's like asking for a car when you turn 16. Probably you're not going to. If you take from this story that you, because he's your daddy, you can just ask for miracles. That's not the point of this story is about us asking for miracles or us witnessing miracles or us experiencing miracles. That's not the point of John chapter two in any way, shape or form. It's about one miracle at one specific time for a specific purpose, which was to manifest something about Jesus. What does this tell us about Jesus? You get it, but you ask, right? Um, you know, when I ask for miracles, I pretty much want them because I want them, right? And not because I'm thinking about God being glorified, though I may pay that idea lip service, right? I might hold it out as bait, like, oh, Lord, do this thing. And I will give you the glory, right? Um, don't you want to do this thing? Don't you want to get lots of glory from me? But really, I'm asking because I want to heal this person, fix this, um, help that. You know, I, I I want it for me. And what what this passage is telling us is when God gives miracles, they are not just to see our face light up. This text is not saying anything about you getting miracles. This text is not about you. This text is about one miracle, one specific time to point something about Jesus. Seven of these miracles in the Gospel of John that specifically tell us something about Jesus. What does this miracle tell us about Jesus? They are supposed to reveal something to us about his glory, about his character, about his nature. Um, so yeah, and the disciples believed in him. The Bible is full of signs and wonders. And I think many of us think, many of us can think of signs and wonders that we ourselves have witnessed. I hope you can. Um, healings, changes of heart addictions or bonds being broken, prayers being answered. I hope in your walk with God, you can look at moments in your life and say, that was a sign from God. That was a miracle. That was God breaking through. I can see that. And 
when these things have happened, they are meant to display God's glory and increase our faith. I hope when you, um, you know, when you are trying to, we are told often in church, in the Bible to remember that when we are told to remember, I hope there are some automatic things that come to mind for you, sort of touchstones where you're like, I remember, I remember so distinctly on this occasion, God doing this one thing. Um, I've been writing a script for the drama team for the Sunday school and uh, they're doing, uh, it was Joshua, you know, when they, Moses has died and Joshua has to lead them into the promised land and they cross the river Jordan. And when the priests enter the water, holding the Ark of the Covenant, the waters start piling up. So it's a, it's a recapitulation of Moses leading the people of the Red Sea, right? The waters pile up, the people are able to cross through on dry or dry-ish riverbed and then they take stones from the very middle of the riverbed to build up these piles so that they can remember remember what god has done remember what they have witnessed to display god's glory and joshua tells them the reason for these piles um are not just to remind you but also so when so that when your kids walk by and say why is there that pile of rocks right there they can say this is what god did for us you know, may he be glorified forever. This is the miracle God did for us. And not only will they remember and be encouraged, but it will increase their children's belief. So that's what they're hoping for there. Okay. So we do not always get the miracles we want. We know that. You probably know that. I hope you can think of some miracles you did get, but I'm sure it's no problem thinking of miracles you did not get. Um, but we can always pray, even when we don't get our miracles. You know, God, may your glory. I, I don't understand. What is the problem with pe- how we handle the word of God? It's like, it's like we're incapable of going to the text and not inserting ourselves. We just come into the text. Get out of the way. Get out. We don't even, just, everyone get out of the way. It's about me. It's about me. Uh, what we we are so narcissistic that we just this is not about us this is not about miracles for us this is about Jesus why i don't understand the modern churches we're 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 better satanists than satanist like forget going to the church of satan to find satanists just go to your church because we are the most self-centered narcissistic people think we think every scripture is about us it's about us it's about hey this is about us getting miracles this is about us praying for miracles this is about how we should get miracles it's not about us getting miracles not even at all this miracle was done one time the end the end. And if Jesus is going to magically make wa- water into wine, I, can he just make wa- pure water available for the people, like thousands of people who die every single day on this earth without clean drinking water? I mean, you know what? If, if, if he's doing miracles, could he just give us clean drinking water so that people in third world nations who die without clean drinking water could have it? This is not about us getting miracles glory become more and more visible to the world and to me may your glory become more and more visible to the world and to me and whatever happens 
If it's yes, if it's no, whatever happens, may it increase the faith of those who believe. Because sometimes a no can increase our faith as well. So God, may you be glorified. May you be more and more visible to the world and to me. And may it increase our faith. Okay, now for the second half of the chapter. After the wedding, 956. After the wedding, Jesus and his disciples go down to Capernaum. That's, that's her. That's it. That's how she handled the text. What an utter disaster. What, what, I mean, like, I, I, I am so, I just don't get the modern church. I, like, I don't understand the modern church. I really don't. I, I, I'm starting to think, I don't even know. I, I, well, I don't even know what you do with that. Let, let, let me just try to help you out. Now, I've got the seven signs book right here on my Kindle. Their way of approaching the text, I think, is somewhat problematic as well. I, I've been waiting for someone to re, to email me going, hey, that seven signs book. Hey, they do the whole second Corinthians five thing, but nobody has emailed me yet. But I, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to set that aside. Let me just help you because it's very simple. All right. Or at least I think it's very simple. All right. Here we go. Let's just go to Exodus chapter 20. Let's just start, start right here. Exodus chapter 20, we read these words. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them is, and rested the seventh day. God, creation, the original creation occurred in six days. We read a little bit about that creation in the book of Genesis. You probably know Genesis chapter one and chapter two. How did it begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was form, was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the faces of the waters. So immediately when creation is being spoken of, you have God creating everything. He does so in six days and it immediately begins with the spirit moving above the waters, around the waters, over the waters. So you've got water, you've got creation, you've got six days. All right. Now, if you go to John chapter one, we read this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We know the word there is Jesus. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He is creator. He is the creator. Now, he is creator. There we know it because it is it is proclaimed that he is creator. We see that he's creator, but we have to take it by faith, right? We just we just see, we just know it because it's proclaimed in text. We don't see it, we can't witness it. Now Jesus shows up and to start his earthly ministry, right? How is he going to demonstrate his earthly ministry? He's going to immediately demonstrate his deity, his power that he is creator, right? And what does he do? Genesis or uh, John chapter two, please note. And there were set, uh, uh, his mother saith unto the servants, uh, whatever he saith unto you, do it. Now look at verse six. There were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up with the brim. How many water pots? Six. Six, six days of creation. What is God, what is Jesus going to do? 
Then he says, fill them up with water. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And what happened? That water was immediately, this is a work of creation. The water becomes wine. That is a molecular change. Water is not wine. That It's a molecular change that the water is literally transformed into wine and six water pots representing, I believe, the six days of creation. He is demonstrating himself that he was in the beginning with the, he was in the beginning with the Father and or he was in the beginning with God. He was God and nothing was made without him. He demonstrates he is the creator right here by doing a work of creation. Now you could argue that he's, he also demonstrates that he's here to bring about a new creation because the Jewish pots were used for purifying and all of their works of purifying did never really purify anyone because they had to continue to do different things for purification, had to continue to doing sacrifices, continue doing this and continue doing that. Jesus is going to show up and guess what? By his work on the cross, he will make us a new creation, not practically, but positionally, where we'll be purified and declared perfect before God. But this is his creation. This is showing him as creator. It's showing him as creator, not only in the physical realm, but it shows that he is the creator even in a spiritual realm where he can take a sinner who is dead. And then because he saves us, now we are a new creature. The old is gone. All things is new. Not practically, but positionally, we are made brand new. This, this is representing him as creator. Now, if you want to connect it to one of the I am statements, which I am statement do you want to create it to? You could create it to because he is the vine and we are the branches, that this also represents that he can provide whatever we need, spiritually speaking. He, he can provide whatever we need. You could connect it to that. That, that to me is the sign. I, 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 she just turned it into, hey, Jesus did a miracle. Now you can go get your miracle. Just make sure you have the right attitude about miracles. What, what a mess. What a mess. All right, we're an hour and 17 minutes. There you have it. Now I had to do, I had to go quickly through what I think the the sign is pointing to, but she literally obliterated the text. She literally obliterated the text, which is just so common in the church today. I don't get, we, we just, we always want to make it about us. It's about proclaiming a truth about Jesus. All right. Now I wanted to go much further. I wanted to cover more things, but we're in an hour and 18 minutes. So unfortunately I need to stop. I mean, I could, I could go on for another five hours, but everyone's going to stop listening. But let me give you, I want your thoughts on John 2. I want all your thoughts about John 2. Come on, send them to me. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Let's have a good discussion about John chapter 2. Can't wait to get your thoughts on it. And hopefully this added... Well, to our ongoing kind of, it, it, we've kind of just fallen into this kind of a weird focus on John, the gospel of John. It really wasn't our intention, but it's kind of where we found ourselves. So we're going to make the most out of it. All right. So there's John chapter two. And that's the, that, again, I found that on the sermon.net app. You talk about just random, but that's what I love doing. And if I find it and listen to it, well, you know what's coming. You're going to listen to it. So 
I know. I want, I want, I want all of those thank yous. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that, but that's just, that's just crazy. That's just crazy. All right. News if at yahoo.com. All right. I'm going to stop for now. We'll probably come back and do uh, a broadcast at least one more this evening. Maybe I would love to do two more this evening, but I don't know if I, if I'm going to, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see what's going on. All right. News if at yahoo.com. For those who are listening, thank you. For the person who contributed 12 comments, thank you so very much because I like when someone's there listening with me. All right. Thanks. Everyone have a great day. We'll talk soon. God bless.